next Sunday, Tim mentioned we're doing a, this beach party on Sunday. Just to clarify a couple things, it's not like a, a start and a finish time for that. It's just kind of like open house at Fogarty Creek Beach on the beach, uh, not inside of the, um, the covered areas in the forest because it's kind of cold in there. We're going to spend the day on the beach. And um, so I'd encourage you, anytime throughout the day, come. There'll be people there probably till sunset. And so it's just kind of open house, come and go as you please. And um, next Sunday morning, uh, before that beach trip, we're going to be honoring graduates. And so if you or someone in your family that regularly attends Fellowship Church is graduating from high school, uh, a trade school, the military, graduating with your bachelor's, your associate's, your master's, got your Ph.D., we have people that fit into all those categories. If that's you, we'd like to celebrate you and bless you next week as a church and just honor you. And so um, if for some reason... Um, if you think maybe we don't know that that's you, let us know, um, and we would love to honor you next week. Um, the week after that is Father's Day, and on Father's Day, just um, to let you know as well, we're going to be doing baptisms on Father's Day, and so if you'd like to take that next step in your walk with Jesus um, and be baptized in water uh, to show that you are dead to sin and alive in Christ, we'll be doing water baptisms uh, Sunday June the 20th. So Sunday, June the 20th, on Father's Day, we're doing baptisms. And how we do baptisms here, we don't have a class for baptism or anything. We just celebrate new life in Christ. We typically do it while we're singing um, so we can honor and worship Jesus as we celebrate new life in Christ. And so uh, if you'd like to be baptized, um, let us know. But you can just show up simply with a change of clothes and a towel, and we'd love to celebrate with you. So those are just a couple announcements. Um, I'm going to tell a funny story that's not really funny. It's just a funny, weird story. Uh, as, as we get into our message uh, today, last week the story was about the crows. Remember that? We talked about crows and beluga whales and sad dog stories. And this is called a hook to get your attention, okay? Um, so I had a weird thing happen to me on Thursday. Um, I have my offices downtown, and I was uh, working on Thursday and uh, was going to talk to my wife on the phone and so I walked out of my office and was walking uh, around the courtyard uh, at the Pringle Plaza. That's where the office is. Pringle Plaza, right above Gambretti's, and my favorite, uh, the wig store. And so walking around, talking, uh, talking on the phone to my wife. Now, I had my AirPods in, but we live in 2021, and people know that people talk on their phone with, with AirPods, and so you're not, you know, it's cool to talk to yourself now. And so I was talking to my wife and just wandering around on the beautiful day in the courtyard, uh, looking at ducks and fish and just having a great conversation with my wife when I felt like I was being watched. I was like, why do I feel weird while I'm on the phone right now? And um, so I, I walked from one side of the park to the other, and I still felt this crazy feeling like I'm being watched. And I looked to the side, and sure enough, I'm not only being watched, I'm being shadowed by this, this woman I've never seen in my life before. This kind of normal-looking, normal-dressed woman um, just comes and is just following me like a foot from me. And I was like, this is strange. And so I walked somewhere else, and she's just like on me like a, I don't know, like a shirt. She, <laughs> she, she's just like just sticking so close to me, like, what the heck? And she has some little kids with her that are following her. And so I, I tried to purposely lose her. And I went to this little bridge that goes over the mill run there in that park. And I'm on the phone with my wife. And I look over, and she's right here. Well, I'm talking to her, like, all righty then. Never seen this woman in my life. Clearly, I'm on the phone. This is not a time for you to talk to me. Completely ignore you. Um, pretend that you're not there. Um, that was me to her because that's the godly thing to do. So 
I try to ditch her again, and I walk towards Gambretti's, and she this time is like right on my feet walking behind me. And she, and my wife heard this on the phone. The woman gets literally like six inches from my face and goes, hi. And I'm like, hey, I'm on the phone. She's like, I know. What's your name? I'm like, I'm busy right now. I can't talk. I want to know what your name is. Like, on the phone, lady. Back off, you know. And my wife's like, who's that? I'm like, hey, I don't know. Call the police. <laughs> and, and so my wife, uh, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go. And so I'm like, by this point, I'm not super thrilled with the lady, but I'm somewhat polite. I'm like, what do you want? She's like, I want to know what your name is. I said, my name is Anthony. Anthony what? Why do you want to know? I want to know your last name. Well, why do you want to know that? Because I want to know where I know you from. And by this point, it's just getting creepy. I'm like, I don't know you, lady. I don't know where I know you from. Um, no, I want to know your last name. Like, I'm a pastor of a church. And said, nope, that's not it. I want to know your last name. And finally, uh, you know, I shouldn't have given him. Like, my name's Anthony Trask. Well, what do you do, Anthony? I'm like, I told you I was a pastor in South Salem. Well, where do I know you from? I don't know. I work at that office right there. She grabs out a notebook and a pen and says, what's the name of the office? I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> and so finally, I stop her and I say, um, what did you say your name was? I didn't tell you what my name was. Alrighty then, but what is your name? I'm not telling you. And so I said, I think I'm going to go to my office again. See you later. And, and she said, hey, is that boy with you? And there was this little boy walking all around the plaza. I'm like, no, I don't know who that is. And I, like, ran up the stairs terrified of this woman. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and I, they're in con it makes some sense in context. But after the fact, I, like, I went and I told Casey about it um, in the office. I'm like, hey, this lady. And we look out the door, and there she is pointing up to me um, down at a black SUV of someone that she was apparently with down below. And so if the FBI shows up today to arrest me, that's why. Uh, but, I, so I, but I realized after the fact, I was like, oh, I think this makes sense now. Like the only thing that I could think of is that she thought I was like praying on this little boy walking through the park, even though he was never near me. I'm talking on the phone. And I'm like the only thing that makes any sense is that she thinks I'm trying to kidnap this kid, and so she's like trying to intervene. I tell this strange story for therapy, number one. Um, <laughs> but number two, things don't always work out as you thought. I was just trying to have a conversation with my wife on the phone, and nosy stranger ruins it for me. And so, of course, that's just a, a funny, creepy story. But how many of you have things like didn't go as you planned? Did not go as you planned. I was just trying to have a conversation on my lunch break, and I was, was followed. Things sometimes just happen that are just not like you expected them to, to go. And sometimes the way that things happen to us makes us get bitter, hard, cold-hearted uh, cold to other people, makes us angry with other people. And so in this series, again, we're looking at Elijah and Elisha. These were two prophets called by God to confront the evil of the kingdom of Israel and its leaders. Um, signs and wonders were being performed through Elijah and Elisha as God performed those things through them to basically give credence or truth to the message that they were proclaiming. And these were men that were so full of the power and the presence of God that it changed the atmosphere around them. These were men that were so full of the power and presence of God that it impacted those they came into contact with. And as James 5 says, Elijah was a man just like us. So these, these were guys just like us. There was nothing special about them. 
nothing that, that made God pick them because they were great people. Just God just picks random people to, to, in our minds to do phenomenal things through. And so last week, we're introduced to Elijah as he confronts the king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. This is the most evil king and the most evil queen that the nation would ever know. And Elijah declared to Ahab that God would bring a drought on the land. And this was a judgment against King Ahab's institutionalized worship of the false evil god Baal. Baal was a god of fertility, um, birth, rain, harvest, crops, etc. And so this is a way for God to declare, I'm the one in charge of life, not a false god. I'm the one true god of fertility, of life, of birth, of crops, of harvest. And so God is declaring to the land that I turn on the rain and I can turn off the rain. And so as an act of judgment and to get the attention of the land, God turns off the rain and he uses Elijah to do it. And so following this prophetic confrontation, God sends Elijah out into the wilderness uh, to a brook, a stream called Cherith, where there um, God would use this place for Elijah to hide from King Ahab and Jezebel and their forces. And while he was there, this brook would not only be a place of refuge, it would be a place of provision as God would use ravens to bring food to Elijah and use the stream uh, to bring him drink. And when the stream eventually ran dry, when the brook ran dry, God then sent Elijah to another place, to a more pagan place, to a more evil place, to a place where the worship of Baal was more extreme, to the house of a Gentile, meaning a non-Jewish, non-Israelite woman, the house of a Gentile widow, a woman whose husband had died, who had a son. And there, this Gentile widow and her son's house would become the new place of refuge for Elijah. And it would also become a place of provision. As God would call the widow um, to essentially continually, continuously pour out all of her flour and all of her oil to provide food for Elijah while he stayed there. And God promised her that if she did this, that God would continually fill the jar of oil and flour and it would not run out until the drought had run out. And that's exactly what happened. Elijah stayed there for three years. And from that last week, we learned again that God calls us to be sent and he calls us to be the sender. We're not always sent, but we are always called to send. And that's what this woman did. And she found that when she gave God her very first and her very best, that God would continuously fill the jar the more that she poured it out. So we we learned a lot from that last week. And a lot of you just moved by that message saying, hey, there's been times in my life where the brook ran dry, but God called me somewhere else to find provision. So the big idea was that God will provide for us and protect us until the work he has for us is done. So if we're doing the work of God, if we're in the will of God, he'll always provide for us. He'll always protect us until the work he has for us is done. And so with that, we're going to get into um, 1 Kings 17, verse 17 through 18. 
And if you have our app, it's called FC Online, um, under the notes, the verses for this particular sermon should be in there if you'd like to reference them. But I'd like to encourage you, if you can, as we spend the next few moments looking at these passages of Scripture, if you could silence your cell phone, if you could put it away, um, Snapchat, Instagram, they can wait. Um, just if you could give this time to God as we look at uh, his word, 1 Kings chapter 17. So God protects and provides. And even though God protects and provides, we still live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world with the effects of sin and death. And regardless of our obedience to the will of God, regardless of whether or not we follow God's work and will for our life, what I have discovered in my life is that bad stuff still happens. Bad things still happen to us. How many of you have had bad things happen before? How many of you were, you thought you were living life the way God had called you to live, and you weren't perfect, but man, you were trying hard, and something really bad happened to you? Yes, and amen. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, tribulation, problems. But he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And it's like, well, that's nice, Jesus, but I still have trials and troubles. I'm glad you overcame the world. Why haven't you overcome this trial for me? You ever felt like that before? Ever been angry with God before, that things didn't go as you planned? And again, my, my story, I was just trying to have a phone call with my wife, and that's not what I wanted. But, but there's a lot bigger things than that that happen. You say, well, pastor, in Christ, we have victory over sin and death. And I would say, yeah, you're right. That's true. We have victory. We will live in paradise with Jesus following our death. We will one day be resurrected physically from the grave to live in a new heaven and a new earth upon the return of Jesus. But in this life and in this world as we know it, people still get sick. People still lose their jobs. People get divorced. People experience depression and anxiety. People go hungry. People get disease. People do fall into temptation. People with great intentions. People who love Jesus, who've been saved by Christ, who God is sanctifying, making more like them, they still fall into temptation. People still experience infertility. Despite all this goodness of God, people still um, live with chronic pain. People still miscarry babies. People still live with disability. People are still poor. People still die. And sometimes when we're in the midst of those kind of things, like you, you just got divorced. You just lost your job. You just filed for bankruptcy. You just lost your house. Your, your marriage is actively falling apart. You lose a son, a daughter, a grandfather, an aunt, a friend. You're like, yeah, all this good stuff God does, but I'm still living like this. And so there's this tension we live in that God is good. We're going to experience good one day. He promises us abundant life now, and we're going to experience a really good life upon the resurrection and the return of Jesus. But we're still in this like already but not yet. We're not yet experiencing all that goodness. It can be very discouraging. So we're going to look at happens while Elijah is staying in the house of this widow and her son. 
And remember, while he's there, they're experiencing great blessing. There is no food and water in the outside world, but God is just blessing them abundantly. Literally, they can't run out of food because God keeps bringing more. Uh, God's presence is there in the house. This woman has this amazing obedience to God that she's, she's fulfilling it through the prophet Elijah. And so great stuff is happening. But in 1 Kings 17, verse 17, it says, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, the son became ill. How many of you have ever become ill before? Not just like, oh, I had a cold, but I, I became really sick. I, I got this terminal illness, this diagnosis that was not good. My child suffered for all these years back and forth to the children's hospital. The illness was so severe that there was no breath left in the boy. He, he died. That's a nice way to say he died. The, the, the boy got sick and he died. And so the widow says to Elijah, what have you against me, man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son? Basically what she's saying is, are you a messenger from God, not of good, but a messenger of death to punish me for my sin? Now, we don't know what the woman's sins were, and we're all sinners, um, so we don't need to read into it to try and figure out what her sin is. She's just wondering, as we wonder today, is this happening because of me? Is this happening because of something I did, because of my past, because of my, my family's past, because of what I thought God had moved me on from? Am I now experiencing consequences for it? Now, we don't know why the boy died. The Bible doesn't say. It says he became ill and he died. But in context, it does not seem as though this is any sort of judgment from God upon this woman or her household because her household is actively being blessed by God for her obedience. It just seems as though this is simply the result of living under the effects of sin and death. And so I'm very, very, very careful to ever say that you or I are experiencing bad things because of something we've done. Because that can give us a wrong picture of God right away. Especially as a Christian, by the way. As a Christian, all of the wrath of God for my sins was put on Jesus, and he died with that sin and under that wrath. So I am not under the wrath of God. So as a Christian, God does not will not and cannot because of Jesus punish me. He does discipline me sometimes to teach me things and to give me good things, but we as Christians are not punished by God, especially for something in our past. Amen? That's true. That's, that's, that's the Bible. And some of you are like, I don't know about that because you live under constant condemnation. But the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so God does not bring judgment upon Christians. God will judge those who do not put trust in Jesus one day, upon their death, and upon his return. But in Christ, we're not under his judgment. It seems that though this is simply an occurrence of a bad thing happening to a person with good intentions. And again, how many of you had great intentions and you thought your life was pretty good and, and something bad happened to you and you just didn't understand why? So 1 Kings seventeen nineteen says, Elijah said to the woman, Give me your son. Literally, let me have his dead body. 
And so Elijah took the son from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and he laid the boy, the dead boy, the boy's body on his bed in this kind of like uh, upstairs apartment. And when Elijah was all alone with God, it said he cried to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I'm staying? By killing her son? Now, God did not kill the son, by the way. But this is what Elijah is feeling in the moment. This is what Elijah is experiencing. You're going to kill this lady's son? You brought me here and are expecting her to take care of me, and that's how you repay her? By killing her boy? God, that's not fair. That's not just. That's not like you. But just because Elijah claims that God has brought calamity upon the widow, and just because Elijah claims God killed her son, it doesn't mean that he had. The evidence proves the contrary. This woman is being blessed by God. And you might say, well, God is sovereign, and so God worked this. And you could say, yeah, God is sovereign. God does know when everyone will die. God does hold life and death in his hands, and God can take away the life that he gave. And Elijah was wise to acknowledge this. He was basically saying, God, I know you can take away life, but then he blames God, and you did? But God has brought life into this household through Elijah, through the presence of God, through the filling up of the jars of oil and flour. And even if God did allow death to visit, it won't be staying for long. And so just kind of a side note, God did allow this boy to die. There is a difference between God causing something, God doing something, and God allowing it or it being the result of the consequences of a fallen world. And so when we get sick, when we face injury, when we lose loved ones or die ourselves, it's not that God has caused it, but we do have to admit in the sovereignty of God that God does allow it. And he allows it for reasons oftentimes beyond our comprehension. Verse 21. says, So Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried, to the Lord. Now, this is weird. Like, I, I've read a ton of commentary of people trying to figure out, like, what's Elijah doing? Is he doing uh, CPR? Like, is this something we need to do when our loved ones die is lay on top of them? No, don't try to emulate this. We don't know what's happening, but it's what Elijah's doing. The Bible is oftentimes descriptive, but not prescriptive. So Elijah stretches his body on the body of this dead boy three different times and says, oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life Come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. So Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So what's going on here? Not only is God the one and only God of fertility, rain, and life, God is also a God of resurrection. God is a God who conquers death. This is why Jesus says in John 11, I am 
the resurrection and the life. He's not just revealing the fact that he's the resurrection and the life to King Ahab and Jezebel. He's not just revealing his work to the kingdom of Israel as a whole, but God is a God who is intimate and personal with those he cares for and loves. And so God is actually personally and intimately revealing that he is the God of resurrection and life to this Gentile widow who lives in a pagan land and her son. And so the God who uses all things together for good takes what the enemy meant for harm, sickness and death, and uses it by resurrecting this boy from the dead to show his goodness to this woman, not an Israelite, a pagan, a Gentile, a Baal worshiper, to show his goodness to her and her son. See, God uses tragedy. That's why he allows it. He uses it. God uses tragedy to bring us to better places. God uses tragedy to make us stronger people. God uses tragedy to make us wiser. God uses tragedy to mature us. And God uses tragedy to build up our character. How many of you have been through tragedy before? Most of us have. Some of you, I, I know personally, have been through some horrific tragedy, horrible tragedy. Um, I have. How many of you would say, I, I hate it when people say this. They say like, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Oh, I would. Absolutely. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. Oh, man, I would change a thing if I didn't have to go through some of the things I've been through. And I bet you would say the same thing. So as, as a Christian, you don't need to give us some false holiness and say, I wouldn't change it for the world. Thank God he allowed the tragedy to come. But we can, at the same side, with, with great tension, we can actually say, you know what? I'm not glad it happened. It wasn't enjoyable. It was pretty horrific. But thank God I'm stronger for it. Thank God I'm wiser for it. Thank God... I'm more mature for it. Thank God I am more humble for it. Thank God I have a lot more experience as a result of it. Thank God uh, my family is going to be better as a result. Thank God I'm on to something new. Thank God he's using all things for good. Thank God what the enemy meant for harm, God used it for good. Joseph didn't tell his brothers at the end, like, I'm really grateful that you guys threw me in a well and pretended I died and left me for dead and allowed me to get sold into slavery. He didn't say, I'm really glad that the person I became a slave for accused me of raping his wife. I'm really glad I was in prison all those years. I'm really glad. He didn't say that at all. He just said, it's all good because what the enemy used for harm, what you guys used for harm, God still turned it around for good. I'm not, I'm not grateful for what happened to me. I didn't like the experience, but man, God did something amazing as a result of it. And God can turn tragedy, cheesy saying, and he can turn it into a testimony. And he can really change your life and others as a result. So we could just stop here and say, yes, we have taught this verse today. And we're done. Let's pray and let's go home. But you didn't come here today just for a simple Bible study. You came here today because you wanted change in your life. 
Here's what, there are two things I want you to know as, as, as we go into our week this week. Number one, it's completely acceptable to be ticked at God. It is completely appropriate to be angry at and with God. And again, some of you maybe come from a religious background. You're like, whoa, that's not righteous. You haven't read the Bible. If you don't know, that's okay. It's completely appropriate to be angry with God. It's completely acceptable to doubt God. Oftentimes, we won't get radically into this, but I believe doubt is one of the greatest signs of your faith. Because oftentimes people will come to me because I happen to be a pastor. Like, I'm so worried, pastor, because I'm doubting God. I'm like, hey, listen, someone who didn't love God, who didn't care about God, who God wasn't working in their life, wouldn't be concerned about doubting God because they just don't care. Your doubt is actually proof that you care a lot about God. It's completely acceptable to question God. The widow, she said, what have you against me, Elijah? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son? You say, well, she was mad at Elijah. Elijah just represented God. She didn't know it, but she was actually saying, what have you against me, God? Have you come to me to bring remembrance of my sin and and kill my son, God? Elijah says, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon this poor lady and her son by killing him? You see, God can handle our anger. God did not look at the widow's anger and say, oh, she's mad at me. She doubts me. She's questioning me. I'm not resurrecting her son. It was quite the contrary. God did not hear Elijah's complaint. God, you're going to do this to me, to her, to the boy. You're going to kill the boy. That didn't cause God to prevent the resurrection, I think in a strange way it actually brought about the resurrection. Examples in the Bible, Martha was angry that Jesus didn't prevent Lazarus from dying. That didn't stop Jesus from raising Lazarus from the dead. John the Baptist was angry that he was in prison for preaching the truth and was about to get his head chopped off. How many of you would be mad if that was your story? That didn't stop Jesus from praising him and saying, hey, John the Baptist... He's the greatest man who's ever lived. Job was angry that God allowed his family to die and for all of his possessions to be taken away. Job accused God of not acting justly. And God did confront Job's wrong idea and corrected his thinking. But it didn't stop God from restoring and doubling what Job lost. Read the book of Job. Don't read it when you're going through a real hard time. It'll make you feel worse. But, like, read it maybe on the other side of a bad time. We get Job wrong. We think that, like, oh, Job was this amazing guy. He didn't curse God. But, yeah, Job never cursed God, but he was real ticked at God. And he accused God of not acting like God. And at the end of the story, God says, hey, Job, were you there when I created the stars? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Because I'm pretty sure... That me, God, knows how to be God, and you have no business telling me how to be God when you're not God. That's the story of Job. It is. You ever read Psalm before? It's a mess. David is a roller coaster ride of emotion. But that doesn't stop God from calling David a man after his own heart. The key in your anger before God is to bring the anger to God. 
The key in our anger to God is to bring it to him, not run away from him or avoid him because we're angry with him. Because when we avoid God when we're angry with God and when we run away from God when we're angry with God, it allows our heart to become hardened and bitter and cold. That's what happened to Jonah. Psalms 55, David says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. You say, Pastor, I'm not righteous. No, but in Christ you are. In Christ you are righteous. And so this idea here, casting your burden on the Lord, God speaking through the prophet, the King David, is just saying, I can take it. He can take, he, he'll sustain you. Yeah, be angry. Be ticked off. God can handle it. 1 Peter 5, 7, um, using the, this um, reference to Psalm 55, says, cast all your anxieties on God because God cares for you. And you might think, I have no right to be angry with God. And you're actually right in that. You don't have any right to. But it's okay to. And because of that, because you're angry about something, here, First Peter, Peter is, is being led by the Spirit and writes, if it matters to you, it matters to God. If you're angry about something, God is concerned. If you're grieving something, if you're anxious about something, God steps in and cares about you Because of it, whether you're right or wrong, he still knows how to come in and love and to empathize and to change and to heal and to transform and often challenge. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is saying is, let me take it. I can take the anger. If you think about it, Jesus laid on a cross and took the nails being driven into his wrist and into his ankles because that was literally the anger that people had towards God and their own sin being put upon him. Jesus said, I I can take it. God can take your anger. The key is to bring it to him, not to talk about it to others, not not to avoid him or run away. The key is to not sin in your anger. Ephesians 4 says, be angry. It doesn't say it's okay to be angry. It doesn't say sometimes you are angry. Ephesians 4 actually says, be angry. There is such thing as righteous anger. Be angry and while you're at it, don't sin. Don't sin while you're Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. It says if you carry around anger instead of letting it go, if you carry around anger instead of bringing it to God, sometimes bringing it to the very people we're angry at and and allowing ourselves not to sin, but if we hold on to it, it says that we're giving an opportunity to the devil to come in and to allow us to become bitter and hardened and a lot more angry and an anger that will typically blow up in ways we don't want it to. The key is to not curse God to his face. That's what um, the devil, when he had this interaction with God in Job chapter 1, um, the devil says to God, hey, basically, if you take away all he has, he will curse you to his face. And God's like, no, he won't do it. Not my boy Job. He's not going to curse me to my face. 
And even though Job did a lot of messed up stuff, he never actually cursed God to his face. He just accused him of acting unjustly. He accused God of acting unfairly and wrongly, and that was wrong. But God could handle it. God was able to hold on to what Job brought to him. So it's okay to be angry, and the second thing is this, is when you come to God angry, when you come to God confused and doubting him, you can plead with God for the object of your anger. I'll give it an example. You're mad that your child died like this woman was. You can be angry with God about that. But you can also plead with him over their illness, your poverty, your divorce, your broken relationship. You can plead with him over your health, your job, your spouse. What God wants us to do is to keep knocking, to keep asking, to keep seeking. We talk about it a lot, but this parable, we, the church as a whole doesn't talk about enough, is the story that Jesus told about the guy who gets a visitor in the middle of the night. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, when you had someone show up at your door, you fed them. And so the person has this visitor come in the middle of the night, and the homeowner is supposed to feed them when they arrive, but they don't have any bread. And so the homeowner in the parable that Jesus tells, he goes over to his neighbor's house, who is his close friend, to ask the neighbor for bread to feed the guest in the middle of the night. And it says that the neighbor doesn't come to the door to give bread when he's there asking. And so he just keeps banging on the door. And he bangs on the door until finally the guy's like, hey, it's late. I'm sleeping. Here's the bread. Leave me alone. This is not the attitude that God has for us when we continue to knock on the door, but in the same token, Jesus in his story is actually saying, bang on my door. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You can plead with God. You can ask, you can seek, and not relent until you get your answer. And we can plead with God based off of God's character. We can plead with God based off of his word, his promises, and we can do it for his glory. I'll give you one last example, and Kim, you can come up and get ready to lead us in, in a song. In Exodus chapter uh, 30, about 30 through 35, uh, God gives Moses the, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Moses comes down from the mountain after being there for 40 days, and when he is descending, he sees that the nation that God unfortunately called him to lead, um, had descended into complete anarchy. And they had melted the gold that God gave them from Egypt and formed it into a, a golden calf. You, some of you know this story. And so because God is absent and Moses is absent, they worship a God they create, which is very easy to do, by the way. They worship this golden calf, and they're doing all sorts of utter debauchery as they're worshiping, and Moses is ticked, and God is ticked, rightfully so. And so God tells Moses, hey, this is what the people have done. I am going to destroy all the people, Moses, except for you, and I'm going to start over with just you and all the promises for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Everyone else for the last four centuries, I'm going to fulfill the promises through you, but these people are toast. And if I was Moses, I'd be like, that sounds pretty good, because <laughs> these people are awful. 
But Moses doesn't do that. He actually says, God, you did all this to make us free. All these signs and wonders in Egypt, what will our enemies say if you kill everybody? So God, you promised deliverance from slavery. God, you promised these things to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You promised these things to me and to these people. So God, because of your promises and for your glory and because we don't want anybody to say anything bad about you, please don't destroy the people. And God says, you got it. I won't. But here's the deal. I, um, I'm not going with you anymore, Moses. This is just, this is just such an unholy thing. I'm a holy God. I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel in front of you, and, and the angel will make a way for you. You guys will just have to follow the angel, which if you study Exodus, it often appears as this pillar of fire and this pillar of smoke. And so Moses says, whoa, God. We know each other face to face. We know each other personally. God, this is your nation called to be separate, called to be different, called by your name. God, if you don't go with us, I don't even want to go. We want to be with you, God. And it's the fact that you're a God who is with us that makes us different than all these other nations. And so, God, just don't don't even send us if you're not going with us. And God says, okay, I'll go. I'll go with you. But even that's not good enough for Moses. Moses says, okay, thank you, God, for not smiting every person except for me. He'll regret that later. Um, He says, God, thank you so much for not just sending an angel in front of us, but actually going with us. But I want you to do more. Prove it by showing me your glory. Show me your glory, God. So Moses, is he angry? Absolutely. He's mostly angry with Israel, but in a way, he's angry at God for calling him to this point to begin with. And so Moses boldly brings his anger before God, and he pleads with God on behalf of their shared history, on behalf of God's character, on behalf of God's promises, on behalf of God's glory. What will your enemies think, God? Show me your glory. And God relents. We could have a theological conversation of whether or not God was actually going to do this or God is just using this example to teach us a lesson. That's for another day. The point is, Moses was angry and it was all right. Moses pleaded with God and God answered his pleas. So here's where we end. Yet, even with this, even with your anger towards God, Even with your pleading with God, God doesn't always answer how we think he should. And God doesn't always answer when we think he should. The dead are not always resurrected. And in fact, they rarely are. Even this boy who was resurrected, he still died. You ever think about that before? Lazarus, when he was resurrected? He still died. God doesn't always answer our pleas how and when we want him to. So at the end of the day, despite our anger and despite our pleas, God is still God. And we have to trust him with that. We have to trust God. And we have to know that somehow, in our trust, somehow God will use this for good.
So we go back to Job, that story about the man who pleaded with God and was angry with God. He never cursed God to his face, but he accused God of acting ungodlike. So though he struggled and he didn't do the right thing, in the middle of his crisis, he had to admit this. Job 1.21, he had to admit, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name. In the midst of his crisis, he had to admit in chapter 13, though God slay me, even if God kills me, I'll still hope in him. But I'll still argue my ways to his face. You get the tension? Like, God, you're you're God. You're in control. You're in charge. And even if I die, if I live, if I lose all I have, if I gain the world... You give, you take away, you're blessed either way. You're still God. And even if I myself die, I'm still going to trust you. But I'll let you know that I'm angry. Because that's what relationship actually is. You you can converse with God. Did you guys bow your heads as we enter into a time of prayer? I realized the other day, that my, I have a 16-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter that they've never seen um, Forrest Gump. And I realized, like, that's a tragedy. We need to change that. But if you've seen Forrest Gump, that there's a scene that's so reminiscent of, of this sermon and of what some of the passages we read, and it has to do with Lieutenant Dan. You know him? And Lieutenant Dan, uh, he, he loses his legs. He gets new titanium legs, Right? And he's on this uh, shrimp boat out in the Gulf of Mexico, and he lives through this horrendous hurricane, and he is ticked at God. So he climbs up to the top of the mast on this shrimp boat without any legs, and he's just yelling and screaming and having it out with God in the midst of this storm. And then the scene switches to the calm after the storm. And Lieutenant Dan is at peace with God. Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, it's not, it's not scripture, right? Um, but it, it's this lesson that we can learn that, like, we can't hold all this junk inside and not actually bring it to the one who can fix it. We can't hold all this bitterness and anger inside and not bring it to the God who has the ability to bring life, to bring death, and to resurrect the dead. So I don't know who this message is for, but I want you to know today it's okay to be angry with God. Just make sure you bring it to him. Just make sure that in that anger you don't sin. And make sure that when you bring it to him, when you're you're not sinning against him as you do, you don't curse him to his face. He's still God. You still got to trust him. But even in the anger, you can plead with him on behalf of your needs that you're frustrated with. And I think sometimes that's the only way we find peace tragedy I talked about that I went through was about three and a half years ago. I was beyond angry with God. And I was, you know, foolish and just like, God, how could you do this to me? Look at all I've done for you, as if I've done anything for him. So angry. And I I let him know, and I pleaded with him on behalf of what I was angry for. And somewhere over the course of years, peace started to drip in 
where bitterness was taking root. Because there was something inside of me that knew I had to bring it to him and I couldn't keep it to myself. Because there I would get stuck. And God wanted me free from bitterness, from anger, from hate, so that I could continue doing whatever he called me to do. So God, for those who feel like life has not uh, not played out the way they thought. God, for those who made plans and the plans came crushing to an end. For those who trusted and had their heart broken. For those who had hoped but lost hope to death. If there's anger in their heart, God, I ask in the name of Jesus that your spirit would give them the ability and the power to hand it over to you, to, to, to share their anger with you. That they would not let the sun go down on that anger and give an opportunity to the devil, but instead allow that anger to see the light of day as they share. God, I pray you would connect people here with um, trusted friends trusted brothers and sisters in Christ who they, they can share the anger they have with God to, from, with, and in that find peace in you. God, the irony here is that even though we, we find ourselves angry with you and you allow us to bring it to you, at the same time, we don't even have a right to be angry with you because you're God. But God, you care more about relationship with us than you do necessarily what we have a right to do. So Lord, if there's something, something in our anger, something in our hurt or our brokenness that you want us to plead with you about, that you want us to seek you for, ask you for, knock on the door for, would you remind us? Your word says we don't have because we don't ask. And if there's something that you want us to ask for, like this widow asked for the life of her son, and like Elijah asked for the son of the widow, would you give us the faith to ask? With no one looking around, if you, if you just say, and I just like to acknowledge with you, if you just say, Pastor, um, man, this is for me. There's something in my life that I want freedom from, that I want breakthrough for, but this thing we've talked about today has held me back, and I need to be able to offer that to God. Would you just raise your hand as high as you can, put it right back down, just so I can just think of you, pray for you this week. Say, that's me. Yeah, I'm ticked. I need to bring it to God. Anybody else? Say, that's me. I, I need to move forward. I need to let God know what this thing is that's holding all right. He wants you to do that because he wants relationship with you. If you have something you're pleading for today, a son, a daughter, a granddaughter, cousin, a friend, a co-worker, your marriage, if you've got something you're pleading with God for today, plead with him. Let him know. Let him know. After our service is over, I'll be here to pray. Some of our staff will be here to pray with any of you who have something you just want to plead with God for. We'd love to hear and pray. And if you don't know God, and if you don't, haven't put your trust in Jesus today, I'd encourage you to do that. He says he'll give us rest for our soul if you would come to him. So God, we thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. Thank you for the saving grace you give to us. Thank you, God, for the promise of an abundant life. Thank you, God, for the promise of life after death. And thank you for the promise of new life upon the resurrection. But God, help us in our trials, in our tribulation. Remind us that you've overcome the world.
In Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand as we sing this last song. Open up my 
that uh, he, he asks God to reveal himself to Moses. And this is my favorite story in the Bible. And uh, God puts Moses in a, a cleft in the mountain, and he passes by, but he proclaims himself to Moses. Um, and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Um, and I have gone through phases where I am angry at God. Um, but when I first read this verse, it was just a balm to every hurt I'd ever gone through. Because whatever we go through in life, God does not change. And we can be mad at him, and I've been mad at him. But he is a God who is steadfastly faithful and full of love. So this week, take that with you and, and tell God how you feel towards him. So have a wonderful week. Please join us for our after party tonight after our 5 p.m. service. And we will see you next Sunday at 10 a.m.